Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. When Ross first stood up here a minute ago, he, he mentioned that he was really excited that I was going to preach this week. Uh, and next week, it's because uh, this is a series uh, that he did not want to preach in. And, uh, and so, you know, and, and usually, usually when he doesn't want to preach, I'm the one that, you know, like gets to do it, like quote gets to do it. Um, but, uh, this one I really chose and, and I was, I'm excited about it. We are starting a five week series, um, in revelation today. And, uh, I'm, I'm excited about what we're going to cover, uh, for the next five weeks. And let me just make one disclaimer. I apologize to any of you who are in the congregation right now. This isn't for you. This is for my mom who might be listening on the podcast. I might say some things today that will cause difficult conversations for us over Christmas break. So turn off now. Okay. Good. Because today I'm going to talk about the rapture. And, uh, you know, it's, it, 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 this is a, this is an interesting topic. I don't know how many of you know what's scheduled to happen tonight. Anybody in tune with what's going on? Yeah. The, the blood moon is supposed to make its fourth appearance in, uh, almost, it's just over a year since April, uh, 2014. Uh, it's the fourth blood moon. And, and, you know, what that means is a lot of people are, are, are just like creating all kinds of, you know, theories about what's going to happen. And, and, uh, it's, it's exciting. It's really exciting. Exciting. You know, people are, are just saying, hey, we're living in the end times, so get ready. And, and uh, if you were here last week, uh, then you know that, that this study of Revelation and what we're going to talk about today is it's just a perfect extension uh, from the Daniel series uh, that we wrapped up. And, and, um, and so... I know I'm excited to be here, but let me, let me just preface my message real quickly. Um, I need to give some gratitude to a friend of mine, uh, before I really jump into this. See, I grew up uh, with a guy named Omar, Omar Arakabi. He was a, a great friend of mine. We went to the same youth group. We went to the same high school. We went on the same retreats and camps with church. Omar took my sister to prom. True. Um, we, we watched my Baylor Bears get dominated by his Texas A&M Aggies in football. Um, we, we went to other countries together for fun and on mission trips. We lived together through seminary. We've spent a lot of our lives together. And, um, Omar is a theologian. He's very smart. And, and often when I think about you know, the, the times that he and I spent together growing up, I just thank God for his sovereignty and his divine plan, uh, because it's only by God that he, Omar, and I might have any opportunity to influence other people today. Um, Omar's laughing about that right now. Uh, so anyway, the reason I want to thank him is because Omar, he wrote a short book last year about the rapture. And, and, and I'm very thankful for his work because he put into words a, a lot of experiences and feelings that I had growing up. And, and later, as I was doing my own study on the text, um, a lot of new questions arose. And, and he worked through those through this book. And so I'm very grateful for him, for his effort. Uh, to understand um, the rapture and and what I realized in preparation for this message is that I still don't know a whole lot 
And so I want to give him uh, my gratitude. I also um, want to offer some credit to some other theologians, you know, that um, I've read and people that I trust, people that have influenced me. And, and um, well, anyway, enough of the preface. So I, I, want, to, I want to tell you a story. And, um, but first I need to gauge the room to see, uh, who else has had a similar experience with me. Okay. So by a show of hands, um, how many of you have ever had a gun pointed at you by a hostile person? Okay. Like two of us. That's about, oh my gosh, no, four or five. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. For those of you who haven't, I'm sure that you've always wanted to experience that. So what I need you to do, um, what I need you to do is I want you to close your eyes and um, I'm going to get you into that emotional state that the other five of us have been in in this room, okay? So close your eyes, picture the scariest thing in your head that you can imagine. Maybe it's a monster, um, you know, maybe it's a zombie, ooh, that's my son's. Um, may, maybe it's a, a giant storm or a hurricane or a fire. I, I don't know what it is for you, just whatever that thing is that's scary for you. Maybe it's your mother-in-law, I don't know. Imagine that thing, whatever it is, imagine it threatening your life. I'm talking imminent danger, okay? Uh, what you're feeling right now should be uh, an elevated heart rate. Uh, maybe you're sweating like I am. Um, you may want to curl up into a little ball. I don't know. Um, anyway, this is, this is where I want you emotionally for the next few minutes, okay? Someone is out there who's never been to Quest before and is like, who is this guy? What is he doing to me? Why is he taking so much pleasure in my suffering? Um, okay, no, no. So about 19 years ago in September, this is what I was feeling. I, I was a sophomore at Baylor, and I worked for uh, the school as a welcome week guide. My job was to take incoming freshmen and, and introduce them to all the traditions and life of Baylor, right? You know what those, those folks do. Um, and some of you may remember uh, an event that happened in Texas about 22 years ago in a town called Waco. Right, which also happens to be the home of Baylor University. Uh, so there, there was this man who claimed that he was the spiritual descendant of King David. He, he said that um, uh, he, he was the Messiah. His name was David Koresh. This is him. And, and, and he was the leader of the Branch Davidians. How many of you guys remember this, right, 22 years ago? Yeah, the Branch Davidians, they were a cult waiting for the end times. And, and so um, there was this relatively new tradition at Baylor for new freshmen where they would go and they would visit the Davidian compound that the ATF stormed and took over. And, and so um, this is the same place, of course, where the Branch Davidians were, were burned alive. Uh, it, was, it was a weird tradition, completely unsanctioned by Baylor, um, but people enjoyed it. And I was leading a group of freshmen to go see this place, okay? Uh, so there were a lot of us. There were a bunch of 18 and 19-year-olds out for a stroll on the compound at about midnight. It's the perfect time to do it. And um, then, almost out of nowhere, this man came out, charging out of his trailer uh, at the guy who was leading this misfit tour, me. And, and, and he was waving a gun in my face, yelling that he was the sheriff and the judge and the jury and the executioner. And, and we'd better explain to, um, to him why we were out there trespassing on his property or, or, or something bad was going to happen, obviously, right? You know, and, and as, as, as I saw this gun in my face, it's like time just stopped, you know? Uh, I was staring down the barrel of a, a 357 Magnum, and, and it was being held up by a, a madman, I mean, a, a legitimate lunatic. 
and, and I knew that I had to think of something fast uh, before I was out of time. And then all of a sudden, I see this five-pound bass hanging on the wall of the trailer that the man just came out of. This is a true story. I know it seems strange. And, and I asked him, I said, I asked him, I said, did, did you catch that at the lake that's like, you know, a few miles from here? And all of a sudden, his countenance changed. You know, this guy who's angry, pointing his gun at me, all of a sudden, he's like, why, well, yes, I did. <laughs> I'm like, good news. He lowered his gun. He begins to brag about the fish. And, and, and then he, you know, he asked me after a moment or two why I was there, why we were there. And I said that we were just a group of students who wanted to take part in history. We didn't mean any disrespect. And, and fortunately that night, no one was hurt. Fishing saved lives. It was great. And I learned a valuable lesson at that moment that it's best not to be the person in charge. It's better to let someone else do that, someone like Ross, um, so that, you know, they can have the gun pointed at them. I'm just kidding. Um, but what was interesting uh, about this guy that was holding a gun on my face is he's, he was a remnant of a group that believed that Jesus was on his way back to rapture people up to heaven with him. Okay. And, and I mean, you've heard the stories lately. Right. If you're if you're listening to anything, then you can hear a lot of this talk going on right now. The Antichrist is here. The end is near. Jesus is about to return. Fourth blood and moon, all that stuff. And 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 and, and usually the the end part of that, it's it, it's people saying it's going to be nice when we get to get out of here. The apocalypse is on us. Now, if you will allow me, I want to define a few terms for us before I answer the question of why we need to think critically about the rapture. Why is it that we need to think critically about this? It's, it, and here's why. It's because I believe that what we think about it affects every follower of Jesus. So let's, let's begin first by um, uh, defining some of the foundational ideas surrounding the rapture. First of all, what is rapture? Right, The rapture is the time when Jesus is going to return to earth to collect the believers. Uh, they'll be captured up with him and return to heaven. Uh, the timing of the rapture coincides with the tribulation. This tribulation will last for seven years. It's a time of great distress when evil forces will destroy the world. And then at the end of those seven years, uh, Jesus is going to return. He's going to cast Satan into a bottomless pit. And at that point, he's going to usher in the thousand-year reign of Christ, also known as the millennium. Uh, it will be a utopia. The millennium will be a utopia for believers. And at the end of the millennium, Satan's going to be released uh, from that bottomless pit. Another battle will ensue. Christ will, of course, be the victor. Satan will be cast eternally into the lake of fire. And then final judgment, new creation, and Christ will dwell with his people here in that new creation. Now, uh, there's some disagreement on how all of this is going to play out. You know, from the time that, that Revelation was first written uh, about 90 AD by John, who is also the apostle, who also penned the gospel and the letters, uh, there have been many, many, many interpretations offered as to how we should read this text, Revelation. Most recently, however, is this idea of rapture. Uh, while the concept originated in the late 16th century, it really wasn't until John Nelson Darby created a coherent system that included this sudden and secret rapture of believers. And he first proposed this idea in 1827, and once he did, it caught on like wildfire. I mean, and 
you know, why wouldn't it, right? Who, who doesn't want to escape uh, something that, that could be difficult? I mean, when, when we're faced with the option of fight or flight, most of us would choose to flee. If you do a, a, sing, a simple Google search on the rules of self-defense, almost exclusively you'll find that the first rule is to avoid bad or dangerous situations, right? It's almost like rapture theology wrapped up in kung fu or judo. You know, not only does it protect us from bodily harm, uh, but overall, flight is easier. So I only found one exception to this rule, which was that you should never hurt yourself in, in a fight. I don't know why this is a rule. <laughs> Seems obvious to me, but uh, that's also because I'm probably, you know, I'm more of a lover, not a fighter. That's what Alexis says anyway, my wife. Um, as a fighter, though, I probably realized that hurting yourself in a fight's a pretty common thing. I mean, there was this one time when this guy used my own hand against me in a fight. And uh, maybe that's what they're referring to. I don't know. Maybe it's a reference to Fight Club. But, of course, even there, the first rule is we don't talk about Fight Club. Anyway, I digress. Well, it's no si- surprise that the idea of escaping trials or persecution was a popular idea. Right. Um, wouldn't I mean, you know, don't you think God would want us to escape such such a fate? I mean, rapture was this idea that was taught everywhere. Let me let me quote my friend Omar again. You remember him? I was telling you about him earlier. Um, this is from his book on Revelation. This is his story about learning about the rapture. And it was virtually identical to mine. You know, I mean, after all, we, we attended the same church, we went to the same school, went to the same youth group. Here's how he describes rapture teaching in the late 1980s and the early 1990s. He says this, rapture, apocalypse, the second coming, the end of the world. In my church youth group days, a lot of teaching focused on two things, sex and the end times. The sex tops were, they were summed up in one idea. Don't have it until you get married. It's good teaching. Um, likewise, the end times talks were summed up in one idea. It's going to happen really soon. And so for most of us in junior high, our thoughts were also summed up in one idea. I hope I get to have sex before the end times. It's true. I, I, I remember, you know, like thinking this as, as students, we're less afraid of not being a part of the rapture than we were afraid of being caught up in it before we were married. You know, it didn't even make sense. We, you know, we, we didn't want to be a part of the tribulation. Oh, no, I don't want to go through that. But we also didn't want to miss out on sex. You know, it's like, ah. so. So where, where does the idea of rapture come from? All right. Obviously it's in the Bible, right? You know, like uh, there must, there must have been some scripture, uh, you know, from where Darby got it and the dude in the 16th century. Um, well, there are a couple references, uh, that led people to this interpretation. Uh, if you'll turn with me to Matthew 24, uh, verses 40 through 42. I know Ross read some of these last week. We're going to just cover these real quickly. I'll read them along as you Mark in your Bible. Verse 40 says, Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. So you too must keep watch, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Okay? And we're going to read another verse uh, in First Thessalonians chapter 4, 16 and 17. Turn fast, quick, get there. Um, the words are on the screen if you can't get there. 4. 
the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. Okay, well, I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, um, but, but, but there are really two principles that we need to get a hold of from these verses first. And, and, and this first one is, is most practical. We need to know uh, as we're reading scripture, we've got to keep this um, at the heart of everything that we do. And, and, um, and so to take a piece of scripture out of context and interpret meaning into it is, is really called proof texting. You guys know what proof texting is, right? Yeah. So essentially what proof texting is saying is, look, here's my proof that it says it in the Bible. Uh, this is what it communicates. This is the concept that we get. And, and all of us know that this is a really dangerous thing to do. In fact, we don't trust it when uh, someone else does it in another area of our lives. Think about this. Um, you know, you, you've seen interviews uh, where with people where their quotes were taken out of context and they made a person to say something that they really weren't saying, right? Here's an old example. Uh, but uh, when... John Kennedy was standing with the Germans in West Berlin. How many of you um, remember this story? In 1963, he famously said, Ich bin ein Berliner. Uh, And everyone that was listening to him knew that he meant, I stand with you against the tyranny of the Soviet Union that has taken over East Germany. But a lot of people got a laugh out of what he said, because if you translate this line, Ich bin ein Berliner, um, from German to English, Kennedy actually said, I am a jelly donut. It's true. It's true. It's, it's all because he added the word Ein before Berliner. Um, but, but context and cotext, okay? Uh, you know, cotext is the surrounding, the text surrounding the quote. It, that tells us specifically what he meant. And, and it doesn't ever change the meaning. See, see, like there was never a time when Kennedy or his speechwriters were writing this speech that they intended him to say to all of West Germany that he, in fact, was a jelly-filled pastry. That just it didn't happen, right? Context, cotext. We know that's true. Or, or what about what about this misleading folktale? A new bride is making her first big dinner for her husband, and she tries her hand at her mother's brisket recipe. Mm. She cuts off the ends of the roast the way that her mother always did. And the husband thinks the meat is delicious, but he says, why do you cut off the ends? They're the best part. Everyone knows the ends of the brisket are the best. Those are the best bits. Um, She answers, that's the way my mother always made it. So the next week, they go to their mother's house, and she prepares the famous brisket recipe again, cutting off the ends. And the young bride is sure that she must be missing some vital information, and so she asks her mother why she cut off the ends. And her mother says, darling, that's the only way it'll fit in the pan. Context. You gotta know what's going on around it, right? It's important. So, so, so is it possible that there's something that we're missing with these two texts, Matthew uh, 24 and 1 Thessalonians 4? Is there something that we're missing with these texts that will help us understand the rapture better? I, I think there is. Let's begin with the, the Thessalonian passage, okay? If you wanna turn there again, or if you're already there, that's great. You may wanna take a note in, uh, in the column, or margin. 
N.T. Wright helps us understand why Paul used this metaphor in 1 Thessalonians. This is a quote. When Paul speaks of meeting the Lord in the air, the point is precisely not, as in the popular rapture theology would teach, that the saved believers would then stay up in the air somewhere away from earth. The point is that having gone out to meet their returning Lord, they will escort him back into his uh, royally into his don- domain. That is, back into the place where they have come from. So, so in his letter to the church in Thessalonica, Paul is using a metaphor that his Roman readers would understand. It's, it's an encouragement that Jesus is the true king and that he will return to live among his people. He, he's saying that the, the Roman emperor will not prevail forever. So go, he says, and receive your king when he returns. And honestly, I think we have very similar practices in our own traditions. You know, we've adapted them to fit our situations, but, but we still have them. When, when, when my family from out of town visits, usually once they get close to here, they'll, they'll text me to tell me they're coming, which is good because I need to get, you know, prepare the room for my parents to sleep. You know, I've got to get all Lofton's toys out of the way so my dad doesn't step on a Lego and die. I don't know. Um, it would kill you. Those things hurt. Um, all parents know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, it's, it's this prompting so that we can prepare for them to come. If Alexis has been out of town for a while and she's coming back from Lexington, Kentucky, usually when she gets to the, to the outlet malls right there in 71, she'll either call me or send me a text because she knows it's going to take him an hour to clean up the house, you know, from all the stuff that he did in his bachelor pad. That's what she tells me, you know, and I'm like, yeah, it's true. We prepare. That's what we do. We prepare for their arrival. And, and often, often, once I get that text and I know, um, you know, an hour is coming, she's going to be pulling up, I'll often sit near the window so that I know that when she pulls into the driveway, I can go out and welcome her back and welcome the kids back. I mean, don't you do something similar? Anybody out there? Yeah? No? Okay, just me. All right. Well, ultimately, what I'm talking about is, is, is what's going on here in this Thessalonians passage. It's, it's a people going out to greet someone that they haven't seen in a long time, someone that they love, someone they can't wait to be with again, someone who's going to stay with them. And then when we look back at the Matthew text in the story, uh, it, like before those verses there in 40, we actually read some. This is interesting. We're going to start in, in verse 37. And, and, and I think the, the, the scriptures previous to what we just read actually help us answer um, this whole idea of rapture. Verse 37 says this. Matthew, this is Matthew 24, verse 37. When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Who is the one that's left behind in this scenario? It's Noah, right? Noah was not swept away. He wasn't captured. And so, so if there is an actual rapture that we're thinking of, then, then it, it, we're thinking of it maybe backwards. 
We're, we're thinking of it in terms of, of the wrong people who are actually left behind. So, so why then have we been thinking this way about it for so long? Well, let me give you a little history. Uh, after uh, John Nelson Darby proposed the idea in 1827, he went on a couple of trips to the United States, teaching his distinctive version of what's known as dispensationalism, and, and, and included this rapture escape theology. And D.L. Moody, who founded the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago in 1886, back then it was known as the Chicago Evangelism Society, it latched on to the idea and began to teach it, okay? Then another man, Cyrus I. Schofield, and this may be the most important uh, thing for us to understand. Another man, Cyrus I. Schofield, heard Darby, and he became a quick believer. Does that name Schofield ring any bells for some of you? Some of you probably, right? See, Schofield, he then put together the best-selling Bible ever known. That's still today, even. It's the, the Schofield Reference Bible, or maybe you know it as the Schofield Study Bible. Um, it, it, and in the Bible, it outlines the rapture teaching. Then finally, another man in 1924, afraid that the rapture ideas would only result in a mere movement, uh, Lewis Chafer, he founded the Dallas Dispensational Institute, which is excuse me, <clears throat> now known as Dallas Theological Seminary, and, and, and he began to teach. With the backing of these three men, dispensational theology, which includes rapture thinking, was solidified in history. It took less than 200 years for the interpretation of Revelation, this interpretation to take a firm hold on the Bible and influence how we read this text. And I believe that this comes with significant implications for us. Honestly, it can be problematic in how it shapes our thinking. The Apostle Peter, he faced the same issue that rapture teaching um, causes among people. And, and when, when he wrote um, the letter, First Peter, in First Peter 4, we read this. Listen to what he says. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange here will happen, or something strange uh, were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter is addressing a church that was surprised that they too, like Jesus, would have to face persecution and even death in the same way that their Messiah had. And so Paul uh, sorry, Peter reminds them that they had already, they've already seen the glory defeated, that glory um, has defeated death in the resurrection of Christ. The sovereignty of God has already been on display for them, and therefore there is no need to fear the final outcome. Followers of Jesus will overcome death because of Christ. This is good news. But first, there will be persecution. Expect it. Persecution, however, has benefits. The name of Christ is heralded through our persecution. I mean, you see it in recent news articles, I'm sure. When, when we hear of those who stand firm in their faith, in the face of death, we are encouraged. 
and others begin to question what they believe about Jesus. Consider this headline from the Christian Post. ISIS fighter who enjoyed killing Christians wants to follow Jesus after dreaming of a man in white who told him, you are killing my people. And this same man was quoted later as saying he told his YWAM leader, that's a youth with a mission, uh, that he had begun having dreams of this man in white who came to him and said, you are killing my people. And he started to feel really sick and uneasy about what he's doing. The fighter said, just before he killed one Christian, pay attention to this, the man said, the Christian said, I know you will kill me, but I have, but I give to you my Bible. And the Christian was killed, and the ISIS fighter actually took the Bible and began to read it. You see, this is where the problem arises when we decide that it would be better to leave this place that's starting, that's staring down the possibility of persecution. If we leave, then we don't participate in the suffering with Jesus. And while suffering's not pleasant, no one wants to go through it. When we suffer for Christ, not only can we see that as, as a, an indicator that we're on the right road, that we're aligned with Christ, but, but also that, that we, we may realize that our pain might make a difference for someone else who needs to ex- experience the same mercy of Christ, right? It's through our persecution that someone else may experience love and salvation, And so when we read from Jesus and Matthew, from Paul and Thessalonians, from Peter and 1 Peter and and, and John in Revelation, which we're about to get to, really what we're reading, it's a message of hope. Hope that Christ will not only return to us, yes, he will, and we will live him, live with him without separation, yes, we will, um, but that there, there's also victory over evil that exists here in this broken world, all of which we're going to talk about so much more like next week. I can't wait till next week. It's going to be so good. But, but here's the key for us today. Also, that our suffering is a valuable uh, thing. It's an indication that our lives are aligned with Christ. And that people can see our hope in him and grab hold of that as well. So let us not desire to be snatched away from persecution. For that's the time when the light of Christ might shine its brightest. Amen? Yeah, yeah. When the world is at its darkest because of the persecution, the light of Christ is the most effective. Our desire should be to burn for Christ in that time. So then how do we read Revelation? Is it a book about future events? Is it about things that were only written to the seven churches uh, that John knew? Is it symbolic or literal? You know, these are all excellent questions for us. And how we approach the text is critical about what we understand about it. And, and um, let me, if you will, just a brief moment. I want to speak about the Bible in general. This text, this book... It's not only inspired and written by God through men, but it gives us one of the best windows that we have to see and experience God through. And I think all of us should make it a part of our regular routine to study this text. We've got to become literate in the Bible. We've got to let it become part of who we are. We have to let it permeate our minds and our hearts and allow it to shape our lives. And and through this series, I'm going to challenge you to read the book of Revelation on your own. But I want you to read it without the lens of rapture shading 
your thinking and interpretation. So as we end here, as we wrap up, I'm going to just take the first nine verses of Revelation 1. And I want us to just consider how a mindset of escape, a mindset of rapture, alters John's intent. Let's think about how if we have a mindset of perseverance in the midst of trial or tribulation, how our lives can burn brightly for Christ in the midst of that. Okay, so um, if you have your Bibles, follow along with me. Revelation chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 1. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore... who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits, that is the Holy Spirit, who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father. Amen. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Verse 8, powerful. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and with patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I, John, your brother, your partner, your friend, your family have endured this. You can too. Revelation is a crazy book. I'm going to be, I'm going to be honest with you. You're going to read it when you get home and you're going to be like, holy cow, if you've never read it before, like, you know, there's, there's like angels and demons and dragons and horses and, you know, dudes with giant tattoos on their legs that beam lightning out. I mean, it's cool. But here in these first few verses, we gain a better perspective about not only how we should read this book as encouragement, and how it's beneficial for us. But, but we also understand why this message was given to, to John in the first place. Persecution is coming. Tribulation will come. You will experience it. Can you endure through it? Can you persevere through it? Because the light of Christ, it shines its brightest in dark places. And it is darkest among those being persecuted for Christ. But, but, but what we have to know is that when God gave this vision to John at the end of the first century, I want you just to hear some of the persecution that was going on. It was incredible. It was going on all around him. The, the, the emperor Domitian was ruling. Okay. He came after Nero and, and we all know Nero was terrible. He used Christian as like, you know, um, tiki torches in his backyard. Okay. Not good. But Domitian was worse. 
Domitian was worse. Domitian, um, he, he demanded that everyone worship him as God. And if they didn't, then he tortured them. Here are a few of his methods. Um, Christians were torn into pieces, quartered by horses. Limbs tied to the horses and the horses charged to run in different directions. They were impaled on stakes while still alive. And then they had, you know, pitch and oil poured on them, boiling pitch and oil poured on them and then lit. Which, by the way, you don't die from from being burned. You die from suffocation because you can't breathe from all the smoke. It's terrible. They, 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 they drilled holes into the skulls of Christians and then they would pour molten lead into those holes to, to torture them. And then the most merciful way they were thrown to lions, right? Thank you. I get thrown to lions today. <sighs> While all of this is going on, this is the most important part. While all of this stuff was going on, the Christian church flourished. The Roman leaders discovered that the more that they persecuted the church and the Christians, the more that the message of Christ spread. As these Christians were being tortured, through their perseverance, those who were not followers of Jesus looked at them and wondered what is different about these people. Why do they trust in Jesus the way that they do? And they would listen to their message of Christ and they would surrender to him. The church grew. It flourished. The reason that the church grew was because of the persecution. And so John's letter, it gives them something to enable them, to allow them to face the tribulation, not to escape it. It's encouragement. Molten lead, arms and limbs being ripped apart. Nothing that we are facing compares to what the Christians John was writing to faced. See, John gave the persecuted Christians a view of the exalted and cosmic king. See, when we see God as the alpha and the omega, that is the beginning and the end, then then we discover that we can face anything. Verse 8, one more time. Let me read this again. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The beginning and the end. The Christians realized that Jesus was the beginning. He created everything that exists, right? He's in control of everything. He is sovereign. He was also the end. So there's hope. The Alpha, the Omega. He was here before time. He's here in the midst of what's going on now. And he will be here after time. And we get to dwell with him after time. That's the hope. That's the encouragement. So can we persevere through what we're dealing with now? That's why we should burn brightly for him. See, if we see Jesus as the beginning and the end, then we can face anything. You know, there's nothing that we're dealing with. Nothing that we're dealing with. That's as hard as what these guys dealt with. Tomorrow that might change. But the hope that we have is that eternally we have Christ. We will dwell with him with no separation. Our future is with Jesus. See, the Christians who read this, they were encouraged. They were excited to endure through the persecution because they knew Christ was being heralded. Compare that to a Christian community that's excited about being raptured away from it. Who do we want to be, church? Don't we want to be a church that is 
who wants to burn bright for Christ, who, who, who wants to say, I, I believe in you, I trust in you, and I know that you're going to be here after all of this is said and done and I get to live with you eternally. That's what we should want. Our future is with Jesus. Our future is with Jesus. And so today I want to let us think about it this way. As you read Revelation, as you go home and, 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 and look through it again, Remember that it's a book about hope and, and perseverance and not escape. So let your heart be challenged. Let it be encouraged knowing that, that we are children of a God who is at the very beginning of the earth and the universe and everything that exists and will also be here at the very end. And nothing can defeat that. Nothing can defeat that. But what's more is that right now we have the opportunity to be an encouragement for those who are suffering. You know, we bring with us the message of Christ, the message of this wonderful creator, the king of all time. And he will endure with us as we endure with him. So can you bring that encouragement to the world around you? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for all that you have given to us. Thank you for creating us for giving us life and purpose, for showing us love and, and pursuing us again and again and again and again. And thank you for your son, that he would be a sacrifice so that, that our sins would be blotted out and that we, we, we would be able to have relationship with you. God, thank you. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us strength, that you would give us hope so that we could endure whatever persecution, whatever tribulation, whatever may come, so that we can burn brightly for you and help expand your kingdom. Come to us. Let us see your hope. Let us trust in you, we pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.